0: I'm getting to a point where I'm reluctant to go up and down stairs. Um, okay, In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If you all would help me out, because I'm not sure that I'm going to remember all of these, but. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you. Um, the gift of yourself to us this morning in the Mass always, your words to us, your presence with us. We know that you're at work always. That's our faith. It should be a big relief for all of us in knowing that and a reminder of how often we, we bound our word by reason and define it that way even though we know our faith takes us beyond, that there are things we don't see, that you're always at work. I ask for a special blessing on all of us to be strengthened in our faith. The gifts from you are faith, hope, and charity. Um, We're asked to hope when there's no reason to hope, um, to love when we have no reason to love, to have faith when there's no reason for that. In all these things um, you draw us beyond ourselves. I ask for Special grace of, um, of hope for all of us because it's in hope that we know a joy, a gladness to trust in you. Um, help us um, so that in everything we do, um, we carry your kingdom with us, make it real in what we do with each other here in this group outside, particularly in our families. I ask a special blessing for, is it Joyce? Joy. joy, Joyce. 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 Um, (laughs) What to ask? Help her to be wiser about going up and down ladders. Um, But heal her. Help her. God. um, If such things are possible, heal her. I know they're possible. Um, Heal her. Um, If you can, take away her paralysis. Um, Whatever your will is. Um, help her to take a joy trusting you, um, help the doctors um, to do what they can to help her. Paul,
1: um,
0: whatever the difficulty here is, if, um, help the doctors diagnose what's wrong so that some help can be offered to him, meanwhile protect him, um, and help quiet the hearts of those who love them, who are in a darkness Mm -hmm. about uh, um, what's going on with him. Be with Maddie. um, Help her to recover herself. Uh, Mental problems are so much more common today. They're symptoms of something out of order in our age. Um, Be with her. Comfort, again, those who love her. Johnny. um, Bless him and his marriage. Um, Marriages are struggling today, um, terribly. Help him and his wife go forward with you, strengthen them in all that they do. Help them to know that neither one of them is worthy of the other. If they can bring that to their marriage, they will be so much happier together with you. Let it be for all of us, um, strengthen in all of us a spirit of humility in our marriages, our families. Ask for a special blessing on Christopher and Kayla. Um, help them um, to recover um, what they lost with each other um, and, and help those of us in our family who grieve and, for them and hope for them. And once again a special blessing on all of us. Let the work that we're doing together <clears throat> Strengthen us in our faith. Say, oh yeah, yeah. Be with Marcy. Um, Protect her. Um, Drugs can be a debilitating thing. Um, Help her body to recover. um, And help quiet Bob's heart. The the two are have grown into such a friendship, going together, um, having lost their spouses. So. Help them um, right now in this difficulty. We offer all of these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay. <laughs> Can everybody turn to Jones Very somewhere in the middle of the packet? I'm not sure where. Jones Very. I hope it's here. <laughs> Is it, done? Wish I could help you. You sure it is, Doc? Yeah,
1: it's right after Proverbs. Right after who? Proverbs. Right after Proverbs? Wow. Oh,
0: so much for the middle of the. Second page, I'm going to read just um, The Lost. jones Very is a really interesting poet. He's, he's uh, almost unknown to American scholars who should know better. Um, he was a contemporary of the transcendentalists, Emerson and Thoreau and that group. Um, He wasn't as well-known, obviously, as Emerson or Thoreau with with the major works that they produced on Walden Pond and um, Emerson's collection on self-reliance and works like that that I hate. Um, (laughs) Self-reliance. If I could burn that, I would. I can't. Um, I shouldn't get started on that. Um, Jones Ferry is a really interesting man. Um, He was a Quaker. He was, um, in lots of ways, like Milton. Again, I mean, we're, you know, we've done Blake, and here's an American poet, a transcendentalist, very much influenced by the Reformation. Um, he was a member of the Friends, what the Quakers are called, the Friends. He believed deeply in the inner light. The, I think it's the central doctrine of the Quakers. That the most important thing were not the rituals that people performed, certainly not Catholic rituals. Um, that the most important thing was this purity of heart and the workings of the spirit. He, Like most Protestants who came out of the Reformation thinkers, he believed that um, man had no free will and he believed that if he did anything, it was f- for the good, it was under the promptings of the spirit. So in that way, he's absolutely consistent with Milton and the, and the major reformers. Okay? Just a little anecdote um, I love this poem a lot, it's, there's a rare quiet quality to his poetry and, and you'll see in a second that he has this sense of how important it is to be one with the spirit because if we're not, we're out of touch with things. We just, are, we live in a dissociation with our world. There's an anecdote, so many of the transcendentalists made fun of him. Emerson did, Emmer, Emerson had him over um, was a guest one night, I think, and and we're talking to him about his um, belief that man had no free will, and, and Emerson was mocking him and said, so when you put your elbow up on the mantelpiece on the f- fire in the living room, did God make you do that? <laughs> it's that sort of thing, you know. Um, I can't remember what Vary's response would, but it would have been if it was a good act for sure, uh, because he believed that. So Ridiculed in some ways by most of his contemporaries. The transcendentalists who really are um, an offshoot of the Reformation at a time when the Reformation doctrines were dying out. If you go over the New England um, history, you'll know that sometime in, in the middle of the 19th century and before um, the, the fervor had had gone out of the Protestant soul. I mean the, the, the Protestant religion in its original form was dying out. Mostly because the, of the inhumanness of, like the doctrines of um, predestination or free will. So people continued to practice their faith, but they had lost touch with their doctrinal roots. So they didn't have the fervor and the intensity. The transcendental movement is actually a—it's like an outgrowth of it. It's, a, it's, an, it's an intellectualization <coughs> of what remained. In the, in the New England culture. Um, Emerson became the spokesman for Thoreau. Jones was one, um, was one of that group, so this is from his collection, it's called The Lost. <coughs> I don't wanna I don't wanna explicate it, but let me just say, you, you'll see as, as we move through the poem that he's aware that um, when man becomes so preoccupied with things of this world, actual things, Furniture, cars, let it be a rose. He will be caught in some dissociation. He won't be fully who he is. Um, But once once he makes the spirit the governing force of his life, he finds himself in union with everything around him. He becomes a part of them. They become a part of him. It's actually close to what we're going to find out, what we're going to experience when we read Dante. I don't find it in Milton at all, at all, but you'll see when we read Dante that when we move into the heavens, a strange, strange thing is going to happen because people indwell in each other. They, they maintain their individuality, but they become one with another. There's, you'll see this when we get there. There are points when Dante's having a thought and Beatrice already knows what it is before he speaks it, and he is full of wonder to watch this happen. And Dante keeps using these reflexive verbs, structures. Um, When characters meet, one character will will say, um, God is in othering me, or I am in othering you, or he is in othering me, or I am mean in you. Is that clear? It's, It's a reflexive way of showing that at that moment, this notion of one flesh, that marriages have lost sight of in our world is real that people continue to maintain their individuality but they become one with each other. How else can it be? Wait, and let me stop on that for a moment because if that's not clear our, our belief is that God is a Trinitarian God, right? That they indwell with each other. So there's nothing that one of them does that the other doesn't fully participate in. How could it be? How else could it be? So there's no way of looking at the Trinity without seeing them in this in, in, in exchanging intimacies, that they indwell in each other. What one knows or does, so does the other. So when Christ is saying, in me you see the Father, or, you know, he's being quite literal. I mean, he's revealing the Father, he's doing the Father's will. So that's going to be one of the commonplaces as we move up the Paradiso, we find that happening more and more. It, it'll seem strange at first, but once you realize what's going on, you'll say, how could it be otherwise? If love love is unitive, if that's what we've been called to, how can it be otherwise? The whole call is to be one with each other, to carry another in me fully, for her to carry me in her, you know. And think about what we have to overcome in ourselves, the cross, for that to be, okay? So Jones is close to something like this. He believes that it's to the extent that we're separated from the spirit, we remain dissociated from each other. To the extent that we're one with him, moving with him, we enter into the lives of others, and they enter into us, okay? <clears throat> the Lost. The fairest day that ever yet has shown will be when thou the day within shall see. The fairest rose that ever yet has blown when thou the flower thou lookest on shall be. You'll be one with a flower, yeah. But thou art far away among time's toys. Thyself the day thou lookest for in them. Thyself the flower that now thy eyes enjoy, will wilt, but wilted now thou hangest upon the stem. The bird thou hearest on the budding tree, thou madest sing with thy forgotten voice. But when it swells again to melody, the song is thine in which thou will rejoice and thou new-risen midst these wonders live, but now to them does all thy substance give. We give, is that clear? We give too much to the things of the world, and I love that phrase, so they become time's toys. It's like we're playing with things. I can't read this, to me it's such a convicting poem, you know, how, how much we give ourselves over to the world without realizing what it does to our relationships. I'm going to read it once more because I love it so much and I won't comment, I'll just... (coughs) The fairest day that ever yet is shown Will be when thou the day within shall see The fairest rose that ever yet is blown When thou the flower thou lookest on shall be But thou art far away among time's toys Thyself the day thou lookest for in them Thyself the flower that now thine eye enjoys but wilted now, thou hangest upon the stem. The bird thou hearest on the budding tree, thou hast made sing with thy forgotten voice. But when it swells again to melody, the song is thine in which thou wilt rejoice. And now new-risen, midst these wonders live, that now to them does all thy substance give. Remember the names they lost. <coughs> it's a beautiful poem. I mean, really, it's, to me, it's... It, it, you won't find it in American anthologies, sadly. I mean, just critics overlook it. But it's a wonderful expression of the joy we're meant to have in heaven. I mean, if you think about heaven, if, if we won't be in heaven if we have any sins. I, hope, I mean, I hope that's sort of obvious. Um, in heaven, everybody will be perfectly united with everybody else. There will be an infinite joy, inexpressible. I mean, so far beyond the sorrows that we carry in our world. But this is a hint of that joy, that that union that comes from being one with another. And who's at the center of it? Christ. Okay. So. Any questions or thoughts on that poem? Any response? No. No. What did I do wrong in the reading of that? How can you all be so quiet? That's a beautiful poem.
1: We're absorbing Gita, did you like it? Yeah,
0: I did. Did you? Good. OK, let's milk I'm never quite sure if you're not just indulging me in these lyrics before we get to <laughs> Doesn't matter. I'm going to keep doing it. Good. Milton, okay. Last time, um, we some serious questions about Milton. I I don't want to. I don't want to pick. Mary, drop something. Um, just a couple of thoughts. Remember, um, in in the pre-scientific world, the world as we know it today, the highest. I'm am I'm, I'm not blowing a horn here. The highest form of knowledge was poetry. If you go back, philosophy joined it in the Middle Ages when the philosophic traditions really developed. But up until that time, the poetry was looked at as the highest form of wisdom, It was next to prophecy. The poet was looked at as a seer, a vates, a seer, a prophet. And if you've read Homer, if you've read the um, Odyssey or you've read Chaucer, you know that the poet always stood in the middle of a court, like Chaucer did, and, and told his story. So when Chaucer told the Canterbury Tales, he was in the middle of a community offering poetic wisdom. In the modern world, as you know, this is a sad, this is a sad thing, actually. In the modern world, the poets have been pushed to the margins. They're, they're a voice in the wilderness. You know that scientific voices dominate, rationalistic sort of voices. And it's not uncommon for, I'm, what to call them, poet types, artists, to commit suicide. That's a given fact today, musicians do it all the time, Poet, lots of poets have taken their lives. The poets live with a sensitivity and a grief and a sense of good and bad things in the world that I think in some ways separate them from other people. So the role of a poet has always been a somewhat dangerous role in the ancient world, a really noble one. Remember that in the ancient tradition, the the, the word epos, epic, meant a divine word. The poet was calling on a divine help to tell his story because he was going to show how the gods were involved in human affairs. Milton knew all of this. So every, every, every epic poet, not lyric poets, but epic poets, always gave us um, a a cosmic view um, of of, of the way in which a people stood in the universe the Greeks, the Romans, the Italians, the the Englishmen, Um, always aware in some prophetic sense of something wrong, something was going wrong in the world and the poet was speaking to it, but he always did it in a way that offered a help. He helped the people look at its disorders as a way of turning their back on them and getting out of them, moving forward. So all epics have, have had this cosmic encyclopedic character. Everything's there. Homer was called the educator of the Greek world. That, that was a real title, the educator, because it was through him that people learned about everything there was of any importance in the world. Milton knew all of this, when he contemplated his, doing his epic, he was absolutely serious about it. He was absolutely serious about it. There? Wherever you, wherever you want. Okay. You're usually over here with, okay. with all the other troublemakers, or at least one of them. Yeah, just one. Um, um, Milton meditated on this for a long time and you, we know from what was going on in the Reformation how seriously he took these issues. He was one with the Reformation thinkers, um, and what he was doing with the epic was bringing a radically new way of looking at the world into poetry. And we know this now. And he took Genesis as his his subject. So, he took the best learning that was available to him at that time, the the most modern psychology, the most modern cosmology, Galileo is always already in the picture, he brings him into the poem, as a way of unfolding the universe at that moment. So he's very serious. Um, it, he took pains everywhere with that, we know that. Um, and one of the most important things not to forget is his Christian belief. He believed that no man had the right to tell another man what to believe. He, he hated established religions, you know that, and gradually he became a religion to himself at the very end because he so objected to what he saw was a horrible conformity that people just sort of gave up their lives, they didn't really struggle with their convictions. Um, That man's private relationship with God was greater than anything else in the world. If individuals disagreed on it, on the truth of something, it didn't matter to him because his reference point was not worldly knowledge, it was eternal knowledge, to make judgments according to his understanding of eternal things. This is going to be major for the work that we do today, so just hold on to that. That's a major principle. Um, if if reformers came away from their readings of scriptures with different interpretations, that was not a, a matter of difficulty for him, because he thought of himself and most reformers as referring to divine to a divine order for their judgments, not an earthly order. So did the people disagreed, he could have, he could have lived with it. Um, we looked at four and five last time, and remember that when God watches um, Satan approaching Eden, he sets um, he sends Raphael off to warn him. And I read that passage, which to me is really crucial. Remember. He says, "Oh, if only if um, if only um, people could have heard John's warning in the in the apocalypse." This is such an important moment because um, we didn't get Adam didn't get the warning from John, but Raphael comes to see him and he does get a warning. So Adam is warned and still falls. Now that's important for our understanding of how Milton looks at man, and so I want to come back to that. Um, We talked a a little bit about reading, it's been a constant theme in the work that we've done together. I want to put it out here, um, writ large, tonight. Um, Those of you who've been here for a long time already know it, but I want to do it here. Remember one of the issues at stake here in in this conflict between Protestant and Catholic worlds is how we read things, because we obviously read things differently, okay? Milton is saying that, like so many of the reformers, the most, that no church has the authority to interpret text for us. That each one of us is responsible for reading that text and having a personal relationship with God, okay? And we already know that that presents problems because different people come out with different readings. Even the reformers did. Calvin, Luther did not agree on fundamental passages in the Bible. Um, I want to I want to throw out something here as a um, as an outside perspective because I believe it's important to see. Saint Thomas said that truth is the conformity of the mind with things. Can I say that again? Truth is the conformity of mind with things. We just can't make things what we want them to. is what he's saying. And we know the truth of that. Our, our whole medical system depends on it. When a doctor gives a reading of something, he can't just make it whatever he wants. He's got to determine what's really there, if he's gonna pr- prescribe a remedy, or it could mean our life. Same thing in a court of law. We just can't make an accusation without backing it up with facts. If any of us had a job and somebody accused us of doing some wrong and we were fired when there was no evidence for the accusation, we would be outraged. If we lost our jobs on that basis, we'd be outraged. We'd feel feel some wrong was done us, and I think most of us would feel there's something wrong with the world. That that shouldn't be. That we we have to be careful of what goes on around us and be careful of the truth, because if we're not, people are going to get hurt. It's just an ordinary fact of our everyday lives. Um, one of the things that we know about Satan that, that's indisputable is that he is a liar. I mean, that's his nature. He lies. He deceives people. He deceives his own demons. This whole question about whether a, whether a world can stand united with, remember Christ's words, if, if I cast out Beelzebub by Beelzebub, who do you cast him out with? Um, A divided world can't stand by itself. What's one of the ironies about Satan's world is that it won't hold. No world that's that's based on lies can hold. Okay? So the truth is very important to Milton. It clearly is. Um, Now, what does this mean for the way that Milton presents his poem? We've seen a number of times that he's critical of the Catholic Church for the reasons that I've given remember in the opening passages he, he, he describes himself as um, ha- of having a worthy temple and he's speaking about his inner life and he says it with the implication that there are other kinds of temples who are not, that are not as worthy. The most important temple for him is the interior soul. Um, we saw that when Satan was passing limbo um, Milton was describing all of, the, all of the Catholic rituals and the modest, or the orders going there. The Dominicans, the friars, because they're all, they're all vain. They're not, they're not basing their lives on this individual relationship with Christ. They're getting caught up in the rules of orders. So in his mind, they were all vanities. When Adam and Eve go to bed in book four, at the very end of the book, remember, there's that lovely passage when they take their hands and go into the bower, and Milton describes them having just come from prayers and says something to the effect that, that, that now they will, um, um, now they will go in to perform their rights, the conjugal rights, the sexual rights, which will be in perfect courtesy with each other. Other rights, he said, other rights performing none. I think indirectly that's an allusion to Catholic Church that there are these other rites that are that miss something of what's going on between Adam and Eve at that moment. Um, we saw that the demons don't read very well. In the in the council, they don't read each other. They don't see through Satan's deception. Uriel doesn't see Satan's deception. Um, so demons deceive themselves. I'm. I, I, suggested that I think there's a serious problem in that, and and I'll come back to it again, but... um, How well do Adam and Eve read? We're not there yet, but Eve, after this dream in which Satan tempts her, she wants to go out on her own, and Satan will tempt her. Um, Adam and Eve are presented as two very, very different kinds of characters. Remember, Eve is described as being caught up with that image in the pool. Um, You don't have to necessarily come away thinking that's narcissism, but in some ways it seems to me Milton is is planting seeds that she's going to be the one that um, Satan's going to appeal to. Because in the pool, she doesn't know it's her, but she's so captivated by that beauty she can't come away. And even if she does come away, she'll know, that the image that she saw was her own. Adam's gonna say something similar to that when he he talks with Raphael about his beginning. He said the first time he saw Eve, um, he wanted to find her again, because if he didn't, this is not the right words, but if he didn't, his world would be lost. So even he is overcome by the beauty of Eve. Um, God and the Son major questions here, major, major questions. I don't want to go back all over, to, over, all of them, but remember when the son and father are speaking in book four, um, as they watch Satan going to Eden, when the father is saying, I made these creatures well, ingrate. he had the best of me, um, almost <clears throat> Almost resentful that God that man could have let him down after he did all that he did for him. Um, I want to go back and look at this passage because it's major. Go, go to five just quickly. I want to just rehearse it here before we go on. Chapter five. I want this clear in everybody's mind. Book five, line 600) <coughs> <clears throat> Remember, this is Raphael describing what happened in heaven. Remember that Raphael had just finished telling Adam that if he was obedient, he would gradually be transformed into a spirit. It's like he would lose his carnal nature. He would be transformed into a spirit and become ethereal. Those are his words, spirit and ethereal. (coughs) And Adam says, what do you mean if I'm obedient? Because such a notion never occurred to you." And then Raphael describes that moment when the father elevated the son. And remember, that's the crux of the whole book. That's the crux of the entire book. Because it's on the basis of that act, what Satan took as arbitrary, that he rebelled. And felt justified in doing that. He didn't think God, a good monarch, could do nothing arbitrary. That's a sign of a despot, of a despotic government. So take a look at that. Here are ye angels. Remember he calls everybody together and he says, This day I have begot whom I declare my only son, and on this holy hill him have anointed whom I now (coughs) behold at my right hand. Your head I him appoint by myself, if sworn to him shall bow all knees in heaven and shall confess him Lord. Under his great vice-regent reign abide, united as one individual soul. Now you remember what happens in the, in the debate between Abdul and Satan, because Abdul says to him, you have no right to rebel against this, this is our Lord. And, and Satan's argument is he had no right to elevate one of us above ourselves. The implication here is that God made the angels and the sun. They share a nature, but he elevated them. Because one of the meanings of Bhagat, this day of "begat" "begat" means to elevate. It can also mean elevate. So he took, he made one of them greater than the others. And the one that he made greater was actually the one um, by whom he made the the rest of creation and the other angels. Is that clear? Christ is of the same nature as the angels. He's been elevated. Okay? Now, the question that we have to deal with here, I don't want to take much time with it now, but I really do want to come back. Is this an Arian belief in Milton? And you, you, those of you who were here last time, you remember when we did some of the early church heresies. Remember, Arians, Arius said that Christ was a superior being, but he wasn't one with the Trinity, okay? The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that. Jehovah's Witnesses deny the Trinity, they believe Christ is an exceptional, like an angelic person. And so there's something of an Arian, seems like there's an Arian belief here. Um, now, while I'm doing this, could you hold on to this? We've already seen the God the father and son in a number of exchanges and let me just ask this because I think we can pass when you read those passages do you ever get the feeling that the father and son are indwelling or do they seem like separate individuals
2: separate.
0: don't they mm-hmm. yeah just hold on to that okay because I want, I want to come back because we know from those exchanges that very often things are said between them that make it clear that one or the other doesn't know. When God says, I'm, um, I'm going to um, damn man, and the son says, are you going to lose your creation like this? And the father says, not unless somebody steps forward. It, it, it's as if they're almost making clear to each other what they didn't know until they said that. Um, so Milton's treatment of the father and son, how do, how do they read each other? How do we read them, okay? Um, very, very quick, let's see, anything more in this reading? This reading is so fundamental to everything we're doing. Um, let me just do a very, very quick summary of books six, seven, and eight. Um, Remember that when we left last week, Satan had separated out his forces. He was um, angry and resentful that God had elevated the sun the way he did and felt justified in rebelling. He takes his forces aside and we see that quarrel, that debate between Abdu'l and Satan and it ends there. Book six opens with um, Abdu'l returning to heaven and let me even stop there. Is it possible? Is it possible for, an, again, is it possible for an angel to be divided? Remember, God the Father said in book three, he said, um, the angels are damned, period. There's no place for um, relenting. I can relent with man because man was deceived. So here we've got an angel who's treated as if he was on the wrong side and then is welcomed back. And I think that's Milton's way of showing how much he admired um, an individual to stand up against a massive crowd. Abdul comes back, and then God sends Michael and Gabriel with his armies to stop Satan. I, I don't want to go over them a couple of things here. You, you know that what happens, um, Abdul and Satan are the first to confront each other. Then Satan and Michael meet, and Satan or Michael takes his sword. he cuts off. Um, Satan's sword, and then slices him, and we're told that that's the first pain Satan knew. Um, then the other angels square off, and um, the, the the good angels have the better of the day, um, but they're they're shaken by by g- getting the worst of it. But that night, the, Satan says to his angels. If we can survive one defeat, we can survive defeats infinitely, eternally. Second day, they return to the battles, except this day, because one of the angels had challenged Satan to come up with something. Satan comes up with gunpowder, and so in the next day, the, the good angels confront the bad angels with cannons. And they're... Shaken by them at first, but then they gather their wits and they go pull up all these mountains and then use these mountains to, to, to throw at the bad angels and and that goes on. Um, it says heaven gone to rack with ruin overspread um, that that heaven seems caught in this turmoil. Can anybody can anybody imagine heaven being described in terms of a Homeric battle on the field? In the third day. The, the Father's been watching this and he's been letting it happen because to his mind it was his way of in, um, underscoring the glory of the Son. The Son comes out, he shows his terror um, with only half his powers and the demons are described as being routed. And the last description of them is they're is like a herd of goats from the Bible they're taken to a cliff and thrown over and it's a nine-day fall and they're in hell, that's where the, that's where the epic began. So right now we'll return to the beginning of the epic where we started. Um, and Raphael concludes the description of all of it by, by moralizing and telling Adam to be careful of what he does. Um, book seven, um, Raphael describes the seven days of creation, um, and when he ends it once again he gives a warning to Adam to be careful of what he does. There's a couple of passages here I want to go to, but right now I just I want to get out the plot. In book eight Adam is full of questions about what Raphael's just described and he asked him t- to explain some things about the universe so we get a description of the general universe. Um, it's then that Adam describes himself coming to consciousness um, his, his talk with God about his loneliness, what, what's called his original solitude, and it's in that exchange that, that God um, offers, ex- explains to Adam that um, he made Eve to take him out of that solitude, but he reminds him that he himself is alone. It's a passage, particularly a passage I want to go to. Um, Adam describes his wonder at looking at Eve, and then once again, Raphael warns him to be on guard because if he lets his love (laughs) of Eve become too great, he'd be overcome by her and bad things will happen. Now that's it. Um... of things. Turn to book seven. Book seven, 140. God and the good angels have defeated the bad and Raphael's describing creation and this is Raphael's description of God's reason for creation. This is crucial, I believe. Okay, about line 140. At least our environs foe hath failed who thought all like himself rebellious by whose aid this inaccessible high strength the seed of deity, supreme, us dispossessed, he trusted to have seized and in defraud drew many whom their place knows here no more. Remember, they're written out of the Book of Life. That happened in the war. Yet far the greater part have kept, that is, more of us remain behind. I see their station, heaven yet populous retains numbers sufficient to possess her realms, anything odd about that as if God needed to have a certain number to make being okay number sufficient to possess your realms um, though wide and thus high temple to frequent with ministries due and solemn rites but lest his heart exalt him in the harm already done to have dispeopled heaven my damage fondly deemed I can repair that detriment if such it be to lose, self-lost in a moment will create another world. Out of one man, a race of men innumerable, there to dwell, not here. To by degrees of merit raised, they open to themselves at length away up hither, under long obedience tried. We've heard that before. But what's, your resp- what's God's reason for creation here? But lest his heart exalt him in the harm already done, to have dispeopled heaven, my damage fondly deem I can repair that detriment, if such it be to lose self lost. Genie, like well,
2: because um, Satan had taken away so many of the angels, the good angels. God need he. It seems to be expressing a need for more beings. To either to love him or to for him to love or both, so he's going to create a new race of humans instead.
0: Do you have a response to that?
2: Well, God shouldn't need anything if He's yeah. God, um, He could, He should be perfectly happy with. With what he's got, <laughs>
0: sounds like talking to a spoiled child. So one of the reasons it seems like he's trying to compensate for a loss. Yeah. But what about the line, "But lest his heart exalt him in the harm already done to dispeopled heaven"? So
2: he's trying to sh- show Satan, I can, I can fix what you damaged by making more beings.
0: Characterize that motive. It's kind of
2: like. Revenge,
0: or... Or spite, or... Yeah, he's spite, not going to get the better of me? Yes, yes,
2: that's a good description.
0: Okay. Any comments on this? What's our understanding of God? At the root of, All love. That the reason for creation was... By the way, in an earlier passage, God says, I feel infinitude. I feel infinitude. So... In that passage, Milton is showing us that God did not create ex nihilo out of nothing. God feels everything. It's almost like a pantheism. He's everywhere. Our understanding of God is that, by the way, I'm going to add, I think this. I, I think this is probably, some of you may know this, but it's been certainly a recent discovery, I mean, in the last some years of my life or so. Um, the, the orthodox understanding of God's creation is he created freely. There was no need. He doesn't, he doesn't need anything. Doesn't, I mean, the Bible, I think that makes that explicitly clear a number of times. He doesn't need anything. He's completed himself. He did it as a free act of love. One of the interesting things to me is if you look at the processions of the Trinity, God begot himself. Or he, he conceives of himself. He sees himself. And what happens in that act is that he begets the son. So the son is co-eternal. He wasn't made, it's not apart from, he shares oneness, an uncreated nature with God. What happens in that moment is the relationship between them is, is clarified. God's original, he's the father, because he begets, the son is the son. But that's not to be explained in terms of generation as we know it as humans. Because in humans it comes in time. Our children come after us. Right? Is that, so it's co, the relationship is co-eternal, they're one in being. The love between them is also co-eternal. That's the spirit. So there's only personhood. There's no forces or, you know, the there's only personhood in Godhead. But it's interesting to see that in the procession, it's almost like God goes out and he doesn't. They're self-contained. But there's an action involving another in love. So it can be said that one of the, Ways in which we can understand creation, it was that it, God offering that love freely the way it exists in the Trinity. Okay, <clears throat> so what we have here is something very, very different. Um, we've got what, um, once again, a very questionable representation of the Father. <clears throat> uh, Let's go on. Um, <coughs> um, book seven, again, line five twenty. Raphael has just described God creating the universe, all that he's done. The poetry of it is just amazing from beginning to end. it's 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 really beautiful. About line 520, he comes to the end of his work. Let us make now man in our image, man in our similitude, and let them rule over the fish and fowl of sea and air, beast of the field, he goes on. This said, he formed thee, Adam, thee, O man, dust of the ground, and in thy nostrils breathed the breath of life, his own image, he created thee, in the image of God expressed, and thou becamest a living soul, male he created thee, but thy consort, female, for race. Then bless mankind. And he goes on. So, what's the difference between man and woman here?
2: Man is created in God's image, and the female is created in man's image. Mm, kind it, of
0: <laughs> thou becamest a living soul. That's his description of yeah. Adam. Male he created thee, but thy consort female for race, meaning what?
2: Procreate. Hmm? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that there'd be more.
0: Right. Any thoughts about this?
2: Yeah, thanks,
0: Sorry? <laughs> say, say again? Don't eat with your mouth, don't talk with your mouth full. <laughs> Sorry.
2: Handmaid's Tale, you know,
0: women are there for purposes of just creation. Yeah. Right. Do you want to respond? What's Milton's view of man and woman?
2: Well, it's also of the time, too.
0: Oh, I've had this before.
2: <laughs> read,
0: read Shakespeare or Dante. Um,
2: no, I, I, I know. I know Shakespeare had elevated women. I understand that. Dante. I only don't know much about, but anyway, um, yeah,
0: he's very much so man of or women, woman Yeah, remember what he in the opening descriptions when he first described man and woman He said, "Man was made for contemplation, and woman for sweetness." You know, so that he sees woman as a companion, and here he makes it clear that her primary function is procreation. And remember, when Raphael comes and starts explaining the universe, Eve goes inside the tent. She, she wants to get it from Adam. So there's some sense in which, because woman can procreate, she's the means of bringing life into the world, that it's almost as if she's not as capable of using her mind or heart for contemplation or um, activities of the mind, the dignity of the mind in its own activities. Um, I want to be careful here. I really do want to be careful. And I, I, I don't think this is typical of the time. Um, I want to come back to that. I, I mean, I think that's a modern prejudice, and I'll, I'll speak to it later. But right now, I just want to... It, it's important to keep in mind Milton's rendering of man and... The sexual relationship between man and woman. Okay. Um, now, going over. This is... Well, I'm... let Doc, if I forget. Bring me back to Raphael in two minutes, would you? Because I'm just, my mind is going. Book eight, quick. Book eight, line 340. In book eight, um, Raphael's giving Adam the story of creation, again, a larger picture. He's, he's attempting to explain some things in creation. Line 340, um, he's describing Adam when he wakes from his own creation. He, Adam describes himself as existing almost in a dream when God takes the rib out of him to make Eve. And he's overcome by the beauty of the shadow that overcomes him. And then about line 315 or so, he says... Re- rejoicing but with awe, in adoration, at his feet I fell, submiss, he reared me, and whom thou sawest. I am, this is God, said mildly, author of all this, thou seest above, or round about thee, or beneath, this paradise I give thee, count it thine, to till and keep, and of the fruit to eat, um, he goes on, there's just the one interdiction concerning the tree, and then he says about line three, forty fifty. <clears throat> he says to thee and to thy race I give as lords possess it and all things that therein live or live in sea or air, beasts, fish and fowl in sign whereof each bird and beast behold after their kinds I bring them to receive from thee their names this is crucial what he's basically saying is you're the universal poet you're going to name things the words that you give things will give them their identities. This is a long-standing myth that this is the origin of all poetry. The naming power of the poet. For the poet to bring things in the way he does with words. I bring them them to receive from thee their names and pay thee fealty with low subjection, understand the same of fish within their water who resident, not hither summoned, since they cannot change their element to draw the thinner air. As thus he spoke, each bird and beast behold approaching two and two, these cowering low with blandishments, each bird stopped, stooped on his wing. I named them as they pass, and understood their nature with such knowledge God endued my sudden apprehension. It's as if he had a moment of illumination where he understood part of his nature. But part of his nature was to understand the essences of things by naming them. Our understanding of this is that's um, intrinsic to our nature, through Adam. That that power was given to Adam in creation, passed on to us. So that when when we're most alive, there's something creative naming things in us. But in these I found not what he thought I wanted. Now this is where he goes to God and says, but I'm alone. I'm, I'm surrounded by things that are inferior, so there's no companionship um, God says about line 370, what callest thou solitude? And he says, look all around you. And Adam says, but they're all inferior. They lack a reason. There's nobody here with whom I can be a companion who has the same qualities of reason. God has already anticipated all this, but notice what he says here. um, Hm sorry, I've lost it. <clears throat> when he speaks of four or 3 Swear he he says, that he, he himself is alone. I
1: hear thou spakest, knew it not good for man to be alone. No. You
0: know, it's weird. It's, um,
2: is it 402 on page 198? What thinkest thou then of me and this my state?
0: Yeah, I think that's. Yeah, here. Thanks, Jeannie. He says, Adam, and will taste no pleasure, though in pleasure solitary, what thinkest thou then of me, and this my state, seem I to thee sufficiently possessed of happiness or not, who am alone from all eternity, for none I know second to me or like equal, much less. He's saying, um, I think, I mean, if I can put this well, um, I made you solitary, I knew you would want a companion. You know, this is all to test you out, sort of, and he'd already planned to make Eve. He makes, he will make her. But then he says, in response to Adam's sort of grieving, that uh, be aware that I myself am alone, that that's the nature of Godhead. Um, Seem I to thee sufficiently possessed of happiness or not? God is self-sufficient in himself alone. Is this a Trinitarian God? I mean, it's a serious question. Is there something Aryan in Milton in the way that he looks at the world? Um, Okay. Thanks, that's where I'm going. Thanks. Um, Okay. This whole question of reading, whole question of reading, people who have been in this class are used to being beaten over the head about reading. The claim that I've been making all along is the older we get the more the more we take reading for granted and the claim that I've been making all along is that we don't read very well at all um, that we assume too much um, you know, there, this is, Christ does this with the disciples at one point he, he says bring the child here unless you're like a little child. What he's really saying is unless you wonder, unless you have the innocence of a child, you're missing something. Um, How many of us reach adulthood, particularly if we're educated, and not think we know it all, and we've got all the answers, we're educated, of course we've got answers, Uh, we're older and Eliot in the Four Quartets talks about the foolishness of old men and being careful about listening to them. Um, Socrates the, the great gift that Socrates was to us is that at the outset of our foundation he the the philosophic tradition begins with him and his claim is um, the God said that he was the wisest man of all and he went around trying to find out why because he knew he wasn't wise at all and he discovered that the only difference between him and other men is that all the other men acted as they had answers so every time he started questioning him about justice or love or truth or he would. He discovered, and they discovered. They didn't think what they knew. What they they didn't know what they th- claimed they did. They all got so angry at him. They killed him. I mean, that's 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 the Socratic dialogue. So, at the center of the philosophic tradition is this need on our part to stay open to wonder, to to recognize we're in the presence of mystery. It's the Job story. To stay open to the presence of things so beyond us. Do we do we really stand in the world that way? So this question of reading is not a small one. Um, I want to go to Raphael in a second. Before I do, I wanted to read a... um, These are critics, okay? Two major critics. One of them, a lot of you will know, C.S. Lewis. Lewis wrote a book on Paradise Lost called The Preface to Paradise Lost. Very, very important book. You need it. In that...
2: what? You need
0: it. In that book, Lewis is making as clear as he can that Milton is very serious about what he's doing. Part of what he's trying to do is show how evil Satan is, how self-deceiving, self-deceived, and self-deceiving, and how important God is. That Milton knew all along what he was doing, very seriously, trying to justify the ways of God to <coughs> man. That's the he states that as his purpose. Lewis made that emphatically clear because he was already at a time when critics were writing in a, in a confusion and making other claims on Milton's work. Lots of P- critics were finding Milton's God, an awful God, and making the claim that in terms of the poem, Satan was a far more attractive figure. He had all the virtues of um, a heroic figure, classical hero, he risked, God was sitting on his throne, risking nothing. He sends his son to do all these things. God doesn't, God doesn't get close to suffering, and the son doesn't. Nobody can touch the son in the war. I want everybody to hold on to this, because we're not going to get to Christ until the very end, and I don't want to say anything about that. We don't see any of the good suffering in this poem. Satan's the only one who has any who approaches anything close to a kind of a heroic quest, okay. This is what C.S. Lewis says about, um, about Paradise Lost. He's defending Milton against critics who are already beginning to have trouble with the epic and he's identified a number of problems, then he said there's another one. In the second place, Milton's presentation of God the Father has always been felt to be unsatisfactory. Here again, it's easy to look too deep for the causes. I very much doubt whether the failure is due to Milton's religious defects or whether it's chiefly consistent giving us a cold, merciless, or tyrannical deity. Many of those who say they dislike Milton's God only mean that they dislike God infinite sovereignty, du jour, by right, combined with infinite power, de facto, in fact, and love, which by its very nature includes wrath also. He's saying the real problem with these people is that they they have a problem with God. I don't like disagreeing with Lewis because I have too much respect for him, but I think he's really wrong here. I think there is a problem with Milton's God. And the reason I'm saying this is because it makes it easier for other critics to write this poem off. If you don't acknowledge that in the beginning, you're half undercutting your efforts because there is a serious problem here. Most people acknowledge it. That's one reading. That's a reading. I mean, I, I, I've tried taking pains here to go over passages that, that, that leave us with questions about Milton's the Father, the God, okay? Some people describe him as a taskmaster, a hard school taskmaster, a, maybe spiteful, resentful, or too defensive, or... I think those are serious criticisms, and we have to look at them seriously. Here's William Empson, who admired Lewis. I think he was present at one of Lewis's lectures on Paradise Lost, and raised serious questions when Lewis gave the lecture. He said, "Um, the opinions of both attackers and defenders of the poem have evidently corresponded to their various theologies or worldviews. Most of them are not Scared to drive their argument to the point of saying so, but the subject cannot be viewed in a purely aesthetic manner as Milton himself would be the first to claim. That is some people would say arts for art's sake, you have no business raising questions about belief or religion bs The poem couldn't be more religious it's about God it 's about God and Satan evil and ultimately Christ. you can't dismiss the poem. Milton is far far too serious everywhere in it. Um, But this is what he says, his God is somehow embarrassing, that's a quote. Indeed, almost all the contestants have used that coy word with its comforting suggestion of a merely social blunder, as if they're not willing to tackle something head-on. Professor C.S. Lewis let in some needed fresh air in the work that he um, wrote on the one I just mentioned, it's called A Preface, Preface to Paradise Lost, by saying... Many of those who say they dislike Milton's God only mean that they dislike God. Speaking as an Anglican, he decided that the poem merely uses beliefs which are central to any Christian theology except for some minor and doubtful points. But even he was ready to grant that Milton might sometimes describe God, that Milton, what Milton did with God was imprudent. Here's the interesting tell for, for me on this. Um, he's aware that lots of Christian critics are being more willing to bring their faith into their criticism than was true 75 years ago when nobody would touch criticism was supposed to be detached and impartial. Um, This is William Empson who's a major critic in the 20th century. I think the traditional God of Christianity very wicked and have done since I was at school where nearly all my playmates thought the same. I did not say this in my early literary criticism because I thought it could be taken for granted and that to fuss about it would do no good. Um, and it seems that nowadays the gap often makes a reader find my position evasive or illogical having had tent he teaches in China and East Coast and other places and has had to learn um, that very often students get interested in paradise lost precisely because it's Christian. <coughs> Um, he thought, well, if they worship such a monstrously wicked God as that, no wonder that they themselves are so monstrously wicked as we have traditionally found them. I hope that's why. I mean, one of the typical attitudes towards Christians today is that Christians are among the most bigoted people in the world. They hold all these prejudices, and they actually believe in a God who who goes to a cross and tells people to drink his blood and eat his flesh. Um, Horrible things. Such an approach does not at least make Milton appear to be a better light. He is struggling to make his God appear less wicked as he tells us he will at the start. This is Milton um, to justify the ways of God to men. Um, I'll stop here. The reason for, for bringing these to your attention here is you've got two very different critics. Both of them well respected in their fields. Lewis is defending Paradise Lost and Dismissing people who criticize Paradise Lost because of the treatment of God and his conclusion is if, if, if they have trouble, it's because they have trouble with God. I don't think that's so. I think there are problems in the poem the, the, And I'm the whole purpose for doing this with you is to try to get them to see what we can um, Do with it, what we can come to. Amson doesn't like Christianity And he's trying, he's trying to be very honest about his position but he's taking a position criticizing some of the things in the poem. You've got two very different readers who are looking at the same thing and coming away with very different conclusions. (coughs) If you know anything about the efforts that I make here, at least try, um, is um, I, I try to take as much pain as I can not to make a claim that isn't borne out by the poem, Because I believe with Thomas, that that we we are supposed to see what's there. We can't make things something they're not to make them fit us. So we can't make Satan something he's not. We can't make his God something he's not. We can't make Adam and Eve. We have to read the poem and draw what conclusions the poem allows us to draw, whether we agree with them or not. We can criticize them afterwards, we disagree, but we still have to do justice to the poem, okay? Now, where is this going? Reading. Turn to the point where Raphael makes a defense of what he's presenting to Adam. I want to look at two passages, um, and then I'm going to stop, and I'm going to let you guys do what you're going to do. short of hang me, please. Um, take a look at f- book five, 563. This is absolutely crucial for the whole poem. Because in a sense, Raphael is presenting Milton's... I want everybody to hear this really carefully. Rap, Remember, Raphael's just said, if you're obedient, if you're good, you'll be gradually transformed into a spirit and take your place in heaven. And Raphael goes, what do you mean if I'm obedient? Because he has no reason for thinking there's anything to be concerned about. And then Raphael tells him about the war. he says there's this evil um, you have to be on guard against. But to make that evil apparent, Raphael has to offer this explanation. And I'll read it down. I want everybody to hold on to this because this is the, two, of the, two of the most important po- points in the poem right now are the crux. When God says, on, on this day, this day I did beget you. Right? That's the crux of the poem because that's the cause, as Milton presents it, that's the cause of the revolt. Okay? That's crucial. This is as important for another reason. So I'm saying hold on to this principle. Because in a sense, it not only explains what Raphael's doing, it explains what Milton sees himself doing. Okay? This is crucial. Adams just said, what do you mean? <coughs> And Raphael now has got to describe the war, which to my mind is ridiculous. Angels using swords to cut each other in half <laughs> and picking up mountains and throwing them at each other. I mean, I, 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 I <coughs> we're back in a Homer battlefield. I mean, we're back in Homer's world. Um, but here's, here's Raphael's explanation. Hi matter thou enjoinest in me, O prime of men, sad task and hard. For how shall I relate to human sense the invisible exploits of warring spirits? How in the world am I going to pass on to you what's metaphysical, not bounded, the way not not seen in terms of images, so that you'll understand them? <coughs> to human sense, the invisible exploits of warring spirits. How without remorse the ruin of so many glorious, once and perfect, while they stood. How last unfold the secrets of another world perhaps not lawful to reveal. I mean, that stuns me in itself. It's not lawful. How could he be doing it? it isn't clear by now, I have real trouble with Milton's angels, but um, even if it might not be lawful to reveal. Yet for thy good, this is dispensed, and what surmounts the reach of human sense, I shall delineate so by likening spiritual to corporeal forms, as may express them best, the what if earth be but the shadow of heaven and things therein each to other like more than an earth is thought. He's going to describe invisible things in a spiritual world. But to do that, he's going to have to make use of sensory images, visible images, because as corporeal creatures, the basic way for us to know is through concrete images. We're not, is okay, that clear, I hope. Look here, Look I, angels, I've said this before, angels know intuitively. Remember, they're all intellect. They just grasp. They have no bodies. We have bodies. That's what distinguishes us from angels. But we have intellects. But we tend to know one thing at a time. And even if we know intuitively, if we grasp holes, we still do it through concrete things. That's, that defines the limits of our knowledge the way we know as humans that clear? Does anybody have a question? Yeah.
1: When I got to this point, I just decided that he, that Raphael was saying angels can time travel, spaceship, and other things that you don't understand. Right. So go with it.
0: Right. You're right. By the way, let me just add, because you're, you're absolutely, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think you're space traveling, but So, one of the things we're to understand is the throwing of mountains, the using of swords, it may seem ridiculous, but the other question we have to ask is there's somehow metaphors for something we can't comprehend, so we're to understand that we have to make some allowance, some adjustment, knowing that they're inadequate to describe what's there. So even if things unfold in time, day after day after day after day, and it's in heaven, we, st- we still have to make some assumption that there's a metaphorical aspect to all of this. Is that clear? This is so crucial. <coughs> yes? No? Ask, ask.
2: You mean a metaphorical aspect to the writing, to the poem? Mm-hmm.
0: And everything that Raphael's doing with Adam.
2: Because if we can't, if we have limits to our knowledge, so did Milton. So he's making
0: the right. step up. Right. Well, right. <laughs> right, okay. Wait, actually, you're going, you're going to where I'm going now. Yeah, okay. Everybody understand the principle. Go to end of eight. Because I've got a. There are two things.
1: Is he saying it's the job of the poet?
0: So hold on to everything right now, just for, for a second. Stop. Can I have. Okay, hold on. I want you, every, <laughs> this is so crucial. Raphael is saying to Adam, I'm going to describe to you indescribable things. All right? they're spiritual, they're invisible. To do that, I've got to make use of visible things, right? What has Milton been doing all along? Same thing. We're being given a picture of what happens with Satan. That is the way evil works, right? So in what Raphael is giving Adam, in a sense, indirectly, we're, we're getting a defense of what Milton himself has been doing all along. And I want everybody to hold on to that. Dante is not going to do this. And when we get there, you'll see, I mean, I think you're going to have a revelation because if you didn't have these two things to stand next to each other, they wouldn't mean it. When you get to Dante and watch what Dante's doing, you're going to realize you're in a very, very different world. But right now, this is where we are. Okay? Now look at the end of... Sorry, is it... Maybe it's... Yeah, the end of... Seven. Sorry, end of seven. Are you guys with me? Remember, this is the the. This is the end of creation story. Raphael has just described creation and and Adam and Eve, in their you know, the end of what God did. And when God, when the son completes his task, then the hosts of heaven glorify him. They sing hallelujah in in praise of what has just been accomplished. So this is Raphael at the end of his description of creation. The end of seven, about line 635 or so. So sung they and the Empyrean rung with hallelujahs. Thus was Sabbath kept. On the seventh day he rested. And thy request think now fulfilled that asked how first this world and face of things began and what before thy memory was done from the beginning that posterity informed by thee might know. If else thou seekest aught not surpassing human measure say. It's going to what you just said Tracy. Somebody paraphrase what Raphael is saying here. that asked how first this world and face of things began, and what before thy memory was done. Was Adam there to see creation? No. So everything that Raphael's described was before he existed, so before he, anything could have happened to, be, to make up part of his memory, right? And what before thy memory was done from the beginning, that posterity informed by thee might know, If else thou seekest, aught not surpassing human measure say. Okay, here's, I don't want to, I want to go back to the question I asked a minute ago with, I want to get back to what Raphael's doing, but for a second here. What does this passage do for our reading of Genesis? Well, we can
1: hardly speak ourselves in like a a literal approach, right?
0: Who's the author of Genesis? God. Debbie? God is. Through Moses. Through Moses. Yes. God is the author of Genesis through (laughs) Moses. What does this do for Genesis? What he's saying is all that I've told you happened before you were alive and So would not have had a memory to understand, but now you have it for me, and it's something that you know that can be carried forward through your posterity. What does this is everybody following? Huh? That it
2: came from Adam. It was written by Adam through Moses. Is that what you're
0: saying? Well, that's what I'm asking. What is this doing for understanding of Genesis? (laughs) That it was written by
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that it came from
2: Adam, not Moses.
0: Well, or that it was—I I mean, I don't know if Jung would call this a part of a collective unconscious—or, but what we're, but what's happening here is he's playing with Genesis because we've all—we I mean, the biblical world, the cr- Christian world tends to look at the first five books of the Bible as having come from Moses, that God. Re- God is the author, but Moses is the one through whom they come to us. Right now, Milton is saying that something was transmitted from Raphael to Adam that goes down through posterity and will become a part of our collective memory. What's that do for our our understanding of Genesis as Milton deals with it? Well, we don't know that. I mean, we—I mean, if we take the Bible, Moses still said, I mean, told. Uh, right,
1: but this.
0: But there's sorry.
2: But this indicates that Adam knew it and could pass it.
0: And what's the kind of knowledge that Adam gets? The knowledge of good and evil. Hmm? The knowledge of good and evil. <laughs> knowledge of good and evil—that's angelic. This, to me, is so important. So, so important the differences between Protestant and Catholic minds. This is absolutely angelic. Could, could well, put it another way, could, could Rapha, did Raphael have access to this on his own as a human? No. Not at all. This is, this, because this has to do with angelic matters. This is the, this is the battle and creation story when no humans were there to see it. So, it, either he's saying something profoundly prophetic that Jung picks up with collective unconscious um, or he's doing, I mean, it's just very difficult to see this, but one of the things we do know from this, from Milton's reading of Genesis is that there's a subtext and the very nature of it is angelic. Mm -hmm. So what he's doing is rewriting, in some ways, Genesis. He's introducing another narrative.
2: Yeah.
0: Where does that
2: leave the Old Testament? Sorry? Where does that leave the Old Testament?
0: Answer that. I don't know. Go ahead. What?
2: Well, where does it leave the Old Testament? There's Genesis and forget all
0: the other stuff. And we have the oh, oh. I mean, yeah.
2: <laughs> but basically, I mean, Milton may have had divine inspiration, but it's a work of fiction. I mean, it's it's his interpretation, not. Not something that uh, that came from God.
0: Well, you just said it. Oh,
2: okay. okay. <laughs> influence. Inf- maybe done. Maybe a little influence. But it's his interpretation. Right. There's a,
1: story. there's a bunch of stories based on the fall
0: of Adam. There's apocrypha <laughs> By the way, there's apocrypha accounts of you know, I mean things that aren't. Were never allowed into the Bible because they were thought to be apocryphal. But Debbie, did you have something?
2: One of the things you started with this evening was that uh, Milton believed that each individual is responsible for reading the Bible yeah. and interpreting it themselves. And so I see this as his interpretation of what he read.
0: Yes. Yes.
2: And so. That's basically what it is, is an interpretation of of what he read, and by his thinking, he's correct, but if you don't believe what he's, but if you interpret it differently, you're correct as well. Well, I think he just said this is one way it could have happened.
0: Where do you get the conditional tenses in this, and I mean, defend that.
2: taken different slants at it he just this is the one he wanted to write this is this is one way that that in his mind genesis now made sense to him and we tend to do that we don't see things as they are we see them as we are so in his beliefs and in his morals this story makes sense yes and since he's his own church, he can make his own yeah. sense.
0: Yeah. I remember because what's, I mean, I hope what's clear right now, even if this is, leaves everybody in a in between Greyland, there are two things that always have to, we always have to make some attempt to reconcile however we do. Something we call objectivity, that there's a truth to something quite apart from whether we're there to see it or not. If, if, a, if a kid runs, if a kid runs into his family door, the mother doesn't have to be there to say, it's there. You may lie, I mean, but there's, there's an objective truth to it, quite apart from the fact that anybody's there or not. And we also know that people can look at objective truths and see them very differently, and as a matter of fact, come up with stories that contradict each other. If that's true, we've got a problem, and you know that in a court of law. One of the, one of the interesting things about the Bible is you've got the synoptic gospels, gospels. all three of them... Are telling the same story right. from slightly different perspective. Do any of them contradict themselves? Yeah. Really, I'm not aware.
2: Well, they
0: give me a contradiction somewhere.
2: Well, they. I mean, they. How is it? I was.
0: Okay. The emphasis and focus may be different, but I'm, right. I'm. I'm not aware of contradictions. All of them. All of them show the unity of the truth in Christ in some way, even if they concentrate on different things. The point I want to make here is every one of us brings different experiences to our reading. That's just a fact of life. So there's a subjective aspect to our engagement with the world, but we also acknowledge that that there's an objective truth to it, that there's something there, and that very often people can distort that. We know that in our own lives. and one of the things that we've learned about Milton clearly is, in some sense, if we take this seriously, and he meant it to be taken seriously, most critics see him, that C.S. Lewis does, and I think he's right on it. Milton was very serious about this. This was his reading of Genesis. And according to his own beliefs, that just has to be allowed. Now the question is, what, what do we do with it? One of the positions that I'm taking here is, I don't think the problem with critics who find problems with Milton are just because they have problems with God the way C.S. Lewis says, I think there are problems in what he does with God, with the angels and with Adam and Eve. And because he does, we can talk about them. There are things to be said about God, Adam and Eve, the angels. My my concern for our work here is, does that say something about his faith? That's a subtle leap, but that's why we're here. Wait, hold on. That's why we're here. I just want to be clear there are two positions. St. Saint, Saint Thomas says truth is the conformity of the mind with things. We just can't make things whatever we want. One of the Reformation doctrines is by faith we, we, we can enter into something um, that's peculiar to us alone and in Milton we see that in a, in a very vivid way. Okay? and I want to go to another question. Can you wait, can you wait for a second? Breaks huh? <laughs> My breaks are good. Huh? My breaks are good. I want to, I want to, this is, Raphael begins by saying, I have to find invisible things, visible things to describe invisible reality." and he does that. Milton does the same thing. Everybody forever who's known anything about the Protestant Catholic Church will say that the Protestant Church is basically Platonic. It's, Plato's at the bottom of it. C.S. Lewis himself said in an earlier work, Aristotle's behind the Catholic Church. Um, What's the difference, what's the difference between the way we approach invisible reality, (coughs) okay? The difference is fundamental here. Saint Paul says, we come to know the invisible things through things that are made. You all know that passage, yeah? That's from Paul. We, We come to know Now you do.
2: Okay. Where is it
0: from? Oh I'll I'll let you know next week. Google it. (laughs)
1: Okay. I'll
0: Google it. I'll Google it. We come to know the visible things through things that are made. It's a famous line from Saint Paul. No, I'm sorry I don't have the Google. Anybody got (laughs) it? Is it Romans when he's talking about
1: the Gentiles and how he's kinda holding them accountable for knowing God? It's he's saying that. They should have come to know God anyway because through the visible. World. Right,
0: through the visible. Because the visible things know, are revealing of. Yeah. But that's not technically Paul's. Those are Paul's lines, but hold on, let me. Um, here's the question I want to ask What's the difference between starting with the common things that we know? and by means of the use of analogies rising to a higher kind of knowledge through the ladder of analogies, through an ascent. What's the difference between starting with those things we actually know? Dante's going to start with himself, the girl in the street, Beatrice, Virgil. What Dante's going to begin with is ordinary realities. What's the difference between that and starting with Plato? Because remember Plato, those of you who've read him know, that Plato was um, not at ease with the physical world because the physical world was always shifting. And his argument was because if they're always shifting, you can't know them. That the only thing you can know according with any certainty for Plato are the forms. You have to grasp the forms. Those are the most universal things. So, um, Plato starts with the invisible things, with the forms, and shows that we have some knowledge of visible things, yeah, visible things, but always imperfectly. It's only when we come to know the eternal, unchanging things that we have any kind of knowledge at all. So, my question to you is, what's the difference between starting with the common things that we know and those eternal things which we don't know very well at all? We have to use analogies in both cases, yeah? To get from one to the other. What's the difference between those two ways of approaching the way that we know as humans? Pretty big. Sorry?
1: Pretty big. It's like like, a very scholastic answer. I'm just saying it's it's a huge gap. It's vast. The difference is vast. Yeah. So it does go right back to what I was going to say earlier. If you want, go ahead. That, go that. ahead. Okay. Um, you talked about how, for example, the Protestants wanted to approach the Eucharist and the Holy Spirit and the faith of the believer, and how they, in fact, um, when they first started to break away, I guess with Luther and then Calvin and some of the earlier reformers they said it's dependent upon the fate of the individual as to what is happening. Mm-hmm. And that goes um, very much with what you were saying earlier, how he's, he's not concerned with us. <clears throat> he's trying to um, conceptualize. He's giving a much, very great importance to the conceptual ability of the of the subjective mind, and just this, the um, I think it's non-Catholic. It just goes to show the non-Catholic way and the more Protestant way of it's how I'm believing, it's how I'm seeing it that I'm blessed with some kind of special interpretive value that I can give it, and I'm not so much held bound to the objective truth that I need to work true to come, Mm -hmm. it's the more, it's the, to not offend anybody, I would say, a little less modest view, where it's (laughs) like, I can have my Holy Spirit experience with the Bible and interpret this, and thus have truth, and stand on it confidently, as opposed to a more modest view, which I would acquaint more with a Catholic view, not to say one's more modest than the other, I've met very modest, wonderful Protestants. And, um, but to say, I have to come to know by grace these objective, huge truths, and then maybe by a poetic way of seeing it, I can kind of be helped to grasp as best I can Genesis. But Genesis is Genesis is Genesis.
0: You're listening if I could if I could, no, no, I, that, I thought that was all really good. If I, if I could add a qualification instead of saying what I can know by grace, I think um, what the church says, what Thomas would say, what Aristotle would say is we can know things objectively as they are first before we even get to a questions about grace. Doc, you, any, I, I want to ask Susanna a question, but it, does anybody else want to offer something here about the differences between the two ways?
1: Security, wait, oh, uh, uh, wait, wait. That's brought up too. It's Anybody
0: else? Did you have something? Me? Yes.
2: Well, I have the Hebrews passage.
0: Go ahead. It's
2: Paul, it's Paul. Uh, sorry, the writer of the Hebrews, we actually don't know. Oh, but if it's what you're talking about, Hebrews 11... <clears throat> Um, it's where it, he begins with faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Mm-hmm. And that's pure epistemology. That's like pure, like Aristotelian right there. And then right after that, he goes into the passage that you're talking about. Yeah. Which I didn't pull up, I didn't keep it. That's <laughs> okay. It's, it's Hebrews 11.
0: Thanks. Doc, when I asked you the question the other day when we were talking about what the difference is, can you remember your, what's, what's the difference for you? Do you remember what you said?
2: No. I never remember what I
1: said.
2: (laughs) That's how bad it is.
0: We go around looking at each other and wondering how we got in the same room together. Just
2: kidding. So, if you're starting with what's concrete that we can see, then you can make an analogy to something that is invisible. Um, And that's starting with where we are, but if you do the other way around and you start with the invisible things
1: mm-hmm. and
2: move to the concrete in order to explain them, then you're starting in an angelic mindset. Is that what you're talking
0: about? Yeah, but it was really interesting. Her comment, I was so taken with it when she said it. She said, I mean, it's just a casual, we were talking about the differences in her, her first responses. It, in the Aristotle one, you're starting. If I remember correctly, you said, you said you're starting with what's real. It's, what, it's the concrete real thing right in front of you. That reason gives, Your senses and your reason gives it to it. And the other you're starting in an abstraction that doesn't have the benefit of our body. And, and stop and think about this just for a second. Plato's attitude towards the body was that it was not a good thing. It was a prison house. He looked at the body in a really demeaning way because it kept you from the forms. What's Calvin's attitude towards the body? What's Luther's attitude, Whitcliffe, all of them? How do they look at the body or material reality? Depraved. Depraved. Absolutely depraved. Everything physical is depraved.
1: So, how do you get to anything good? (laughs)
0: By faith. Hold on, hold on. Wait, and think what, what that does. What does that do for a woman if a woman's the bearer of life physically in her, the attitude, implicit attitude? Towards her, what does that do for the Eucharist? So what's going on here is not a small thing, the way we know. Tracy, you're looking. Is this? <laughs> if you start here, you're starting with what you what we what is within our bounds as a human person, with our senses, with our with our senses, with what's real before us. With the other, you're starting with an abstraction in the mind that may be true or not. We don't know. The interesting about me is in one you start with the ordinary thing and through analogies you rise to the other. We, we use analogies to get to those things we don't know very well. In the other you start with invisible things we don't know very well, you turn to them, but there's no way we have of guaranteeing that we get here. Because we're not sure since we're starting with what's unknown that the analogies we use are correct or not. What do we do with the mountains that the angels are heaping on each other or the swords that they're using? If that's a metaphysical reach, what is it? We don't know. We're in the dark. Uh, Wait, wait. That's kind of
1: funny. (laughs) It is.
0: (laughs) Debbie, did you? No. I think
1: you're
0: self-limiting
2: if you start with what you know.
0: Well, you're self-limiting, except by analogies, the use of analogy in any poetry, or even even in scientific thinking. If you start with what's known, you're not limited by it through the reach of your mind, because your mind through the use of analogies can take you… We know the, invis- the unknown things through the things that are known. So it doesn't limit us, but it has this advantage. It always roots us, we have a way of testing ourselves, we can get back to earth. Because as humans, that's our nature. Hold on here. I just want to underscore this. Christ didn't take on an angelic nature to redeem us. If you've read the ancient epics, those of you who've done this, you know that one one of the great glories of the ancient epics is how much they celebrate the human person within its limitations. Hector did stupid things because he kept trying to be greater than he was. Every time we try to outreach ourselves, we do stupid things. We become less than human. When, when we work within our own limitation, saints do extraordinary things. When we try to be somebody we're not, we tend to get in trouble. So, um, and, and the scope of Milton's epic? Satan, the gods, the angels. At the end of the class, one of the questions I'm going to have is, by the time we get to Christ and we look at his treatment of the angels, the gods, Satan, Adam and Eve, what stands out for us? Adam and Eve? Christ at the end? Wait till we get there. How do we look at God? How do we look at our human person when we're done with it all? I think I can say this fairly comfortably. I mean, we may have differences ahead of us, but when we get to the end of the divine comedy, we will have gone through extraordinary things. And I think when we get to the end of that, we're going to see that the human person is this extraordinary thing within his nature. Extraordinary. Christ celebrated it by taking on our nature. Not to make us something different from what we are. To help us know there's something extraordinary in what he did when he created us. So what's at issue, let me just, is that there are two very different ways of understanding the ways we know. Raphael's presented one of them. I'm just offering the contrast to that. We're gonna run into it later, but they're they're sort of fundamental to our nature. Plato and Aristotle are at at the, they're at the the beginnings of our whole civilization. The two two of them will always be there. Any last thoughts or comments before Stacy, Stacey, you've got a question. You've been having a question for, what is it?
2: Well, I, well, I, don't, I don't know that I could even articulate it, but <laughs> I keep going back to what you said about um, there's a subtext to this poem, the nature of which is angelic. And I don't quite understand how that fits into all of this. So is Raphael using a Plato's method? Right, or no? right. Okay.
0: Both, because they're both. Here, just put it this way. You're a human being. Tell me, describe to me, please, concretely, all the experiences you've had moving through an angelic order in the heavens. Lay them out for me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we may may have moments of revelation, any one of us can. I mean, there have been sightings of Mary. I mean, there have been holy revelations. But typically, our experiences are in terms of our human nature, What Milton is doing is um, beginning outside of that by taking on Satan in the fall. So the whole action begins in an angelic order. And when we we get to
2: Raphael... Which we can't know.
0: Right. Uh Well, Milton's claiming he can. When we get to the Adam episode, Raphael is describing to Adam how he can describe what happened in hell. And then we get it from... Raphael, but Raphael is an angel. So even there, what, what Adam is getting is an angelic form of knowledge. And one of the interesting things for us to keep in mind is we know from what Raphael says, that knowledge is going to be passed on to posterity through Adam. That's interesting because we think we get Genesis from Moses. Now Milton is suggesting that there's also something else going on here. Wait, by the way, the, if you if you guys will look on the flyer that I handed out, if you go back, if you look under the back on the back side on the quotes, I, I gave a quote from Harold Bloom, who's a modern um, literary critic, whose comment is something Do you have it, Debbie? I believe I did. Read it. I'm not uh, I'm not sure. Do I have it? <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> Here, this is Bloom. Um Harold Bloom, for example, in The Anatomy of Influence, wrote that Milton is the central problem in any theory and history of poetic influence in English. It's true. Milton's right there on the the threshold of the modern world during the Reformation. This poem is an extraordinary poem. It opens up all sorts of problems, all sorts of windows on the modern world. The kinds of things that we're experiencing, I I would say there's not an issue. Abortion, pro life, pro, I mean, anything. Look at any modern issue, and we're back here. In this question about objectivity, subjectivity, how do they stand in relationship? How do we know? What do we know? And how do we stand with revelation, with God's word? So in this poem, we are dealing with the, with the central problems of our time, absolutely seriously. Okay, take a breath. I am. Anybody, any questions or Who's, can somebody, is anybody volunteering for next week? Somebody who would be willing to do something more modestly?
1: If,
0: if not, if not, would you all support me in volunteering, no. Valerie again?
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm not gonna do that. I'm not because you were you are super good. That was so special. Can anybody you're gonna scare everybody away. Anybody anybody want to bring something?
1: I want to, but where there's intent there's not always no, I'd love to. I may do it. I'll work at Starbucks.
0: No, we need a we need an, a, a firm yes here. We can't make oh, this... I won't do it next time. I'll okay. give you
1: a firm yes. Okay. Permit.
0: No volunteers?
1: I actually did ask my... Suzanne and I will do
0: it. Suzanne and I will do it.
1: To do a pastry order from Starbucks. So I might.
0: You guys all have a good week. We're doing... Six, 7, 8, what? nine, ten. Oh, nine nine is the fall. So we're going right to the fall next week. Jenny, is this yours? Yeah, thank you.
1: Thanks, Thanks. Thank you. I'll give very brief, but it's funny if he's, if we can come to that, You these are really good set of terms, but we can come to that more supernatural way of knowing things, the more spiritual way of knowing things, like reading Genesis and stuff, um, where you have on the Aristotelian way, you have like, let's start with what we know, we know that there's good reasons, and then we can go forward from there as best we can. Well, Isn't Milton saying that if you have a depraved human nature and a depraved reason, um, then what the poem the poet starts with, what the poet starts with in bringing us closer to reality, like you said at the very beginning of the class when it started, it's so we can step back into our real life experience and experience it more truthfully. Sure. um, Um, Yes. But that's what the job of the poet is. If he's saying that.